Well, good morning again, and this morning we're going to begin a series on the book of Ephesians. Now, if you've been with us, and if you've been tracking and paying attention, you'll go, wait a minute. You were in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 when we diverted for a time because of the COVID situation to a series on the Psalms and then a series on the church. When are we going to get back to 1 Thessalonians? Well, we are going to get back to 1 Thessalonians, but as a staff, we determined that right now, perhaps what the people of God need is a clear proclamation of the book of Ephesians based on what's going on in our culture. And I thought it was really fascinating as I was preparing for this. I was reading John Stott's commentary on the book of Ephesians. And I want to read something that's really interesting. He said, Many people have come to Christ and been stirred to good works by the message of Ephesians. Now, I didn't know this. One of the former presidents of Princeton Seminary was a man by the name of Dr. John McKay. And this is what he said, I owe my life to the book of Ephesians. When I was 14 years old, I was reading through Ephesians. Now, how many 14-year-olds do you know that read through Ephesians? That's amazing. But he said, I had a boyish rapture in the Highland Hills. I made a passionate protestation to Jesus Christ among the rocks in the starlight. He said, I saw a new world as I read Ephesians. Everything was new. I had a new outlook. I had new experiences, new attitudes to other people. I loved God. Jesus Christ became the center of everything. I had been quickened. I was made alive. Remember Ephesians 2 says, even when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive. So Stott went on to write this, and this is really pretty cool. He said, McKay never lost his fascination with Ephesians. So he was invited to deliver a series of lectures at Edinburgh University, and he chose Ephesians. And he titled the theme of these messages, The Order of God and the Disorder of Man. And in them, he referred to the book of Ephesians as the greatest book, the most mature book. Now listen, he wrote this in 1903, the most relevant for our time. And you go, hmm, why was Ephesians so relevant back then? He said, here is distilled the essence of Christian religion the most authoritative and most consummate compendium of our Christian faith. It's pure music, this letter. It's truth that sings and it's doctrine set to music. But then he said something interesting. He said, as the apostle proclaimed God's order to the Roman Ur, which was marked by, so he's saying when Paul wrote this letter, it was marked by a process of social disintegration. He said, so Ephesians is today, now listen, he's writing this then, Ephesians is today the most contemporary book in the Bible since it promises community in a world of disunity. Wow, talk about prophetic. We need Ephesians because it promises community in a world of disunity. It promises reconciliation in a place of alienation and peace instead of war. You know, as I thought about that, I thought even as we, as we watch what's going on in our culture between politics and the pandemic, we, we stand and we, and we say, 
I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. I'm wondering if we ought not just be more realistic and say the divided states of America. But with all that going on, and as we're, we're, we're experiencing this, I think perhaps what we need to recognize here is our prayer should not be primarily for the unification of our nation, but rather for the unification of the people of God in the midst of our nation. I don't think there's much hope to bring all unbelievers together in a great unification. In fact, the Bible speaks of believers as being light and unbelievers in darkness. Our outlook, our worldview, our values, our, our morals are so different that the Bible says, what, what fellowship has light with darkness? And so what I think we're going to glean from the book of Ephesians is that God has all along seen that as from a famous movie, Houston, we've got a problem. The world is fractured and broken. It, 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 right from the beginning, the first two boys on planet Earth, one killed the other, right? So, so we ought not to be shocked that there's division, strife, disharmony in every area of the world. But what we need to pinpoint is what's God's solution? And it's not just that we all have a Coke and teach the world to sing, but that we preach the gospel of Christ because it's in the gospel of Christ as individuals experience forgiveness of sins. And as we learn, the Bible says that we become a new creation. The result of that is then we recognize that it's not just me, a new creation in Christ, a new creature, as Ephesians says, God has created us, but then we understand that the church is God's new creation as well. It's not one without the other. It's not individual new creations where it's just me and Jesus. It's a corporate new creation. And it's the solution for reconciliation both with class, with race, with politics, with whatever divides us the gospel of Christ and the body of Christ is the place of unity. And so as we enter into this study, be praying that God will indeed foster within us a greater understanding of his purpose, not just to reach lost people, but to bring them together into one new community. That's the only hope for this country is that the gospel transforms the church in such a way that unbelievers see that. And as Jesus said, as they see our love for one another, then they know that we're his disciples. It's not a guarantee that the revival of the church will bring about a revival in our land. But if there is any hope for our country, it's going to be through the unity and prayers of the people of God. And so I trust that the, the Spirit of God is going to use Ephesians in all of our lives. I love the book of Ephesians. In fact, way back, this is a long time ago, back in 1982 when I was a student at Cairn, someone had challenged me to try to memorize a book of the Bible. And so I, I set out over a long period of time to try to memorize Ephesians. And I can't tell you how many times the message 
comes back. There are so many relevant areas. It doesn't make you a better Christian to memorize the Bible. All of us have different gifts, different spiritual callings. I'm not suggesting that that's something you, sh you need to do, nor am I saying that for my own glorification or for you go, oh, Pastor Tom, the devil can memorize the Bible. But the point is the rich treasures of this book are so encouraging that I'm hoping and praying that the Spirit of God will will enlighten and, and cause us to go, wow, this book is deep and rich. And, and even if you've been through it, I mean, I just preached through it this summer up in Maine. And every time I go through it, it goes through me. There's so many things I'm learning. There's things I didn't know before, things I knew before, but I needed to be reminded. So I'm excited and looking forward to going through this book. Now this morning, we're only gonna introduce the book and cover two verses. And you're like, okay. so. Let's start with the, the, the first two verses. I want to read them and then we'll, we'll make some comments. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Three things we'll talk about. Number one, we want to talk about the writer. Let's, let's say a few things about Paul. Number two, we'll talk about the readers, the recipients. And then third, We'll talk about the message. And then next week, Pastor Bob's going to begin this first wonderful section of praise to God for the things that he's done for us. So let's start with, with the writer Paul. Now, again, it's very difficult. Just recently I had a student ask me after class, he goes, what was your purpose in this last lecture? And I said, it was to help students understand that if they've only been taught evolution, that the theory of creation has lots of strong evidences. And he says to me, yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, I'm already convinced of that. I want some of that. I wanted you to give like seven strong meaty. And I say, yeah, you're convinced of that. But I said, there's a lot of students here who've never even heard that. And, and, and so I said to him, it's much like preaching on a Sunday morning. People are at various places in their spiritual walk. Some need the milk of the word. Some need the meat of the word. Some need to be encouraged. Some need to be corrected. Some need to be rebuked. Some need to be edified. And so as we talk about Paul, some of you have a, have a deep understanding of the life of Paul. Let me just remind you that Paul indeed, in my judgment, is, is, is the, the consummate apostle by the grace of God that exemplifies, he said, in me foremost, Jesus Christ demonstrated his perfect patience. Many of you know that he was absolutely going in the opposite direction. Acts chapter 9 says he was persecuting the church. We learn from 1 Timothy 1 that he did it out of ignorance. Paul was not a, a, a biker who just liked to go around and beat up people. But in his zeal for God, in his misdirected zeal, he was the one that was persecuting the church. And remember, the Lord Jesus gloriously appeared to him. And I want you to remember something that he said. He said to him, Paul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say to him, why are you persecuting my church? He said, why are you persecuting me? And it was at that glorious moment that Paul experienced this Damascus Road conversion, which by the way, I just got a funny uh, picture that one of my, some of you know, Azar Alam, our Pakistani brother, he sent me a picture. Um, it was a church sign that said, we wanna be like Paul on the road to Damascus. I was like, amen, brother. Could I get an amen? I want to be on the road to Damascus. 
So, Paul has this glorious conversion, but something really interesting. I was reading this week an article by Sinclair Ferguson. Because you'll notice that Paul described the church as being in Christ. This became Paul's passion to teach Christians what it means to be in Christ. We're going to come to that. But Ferguson suggested that the reason why Paul was so absorbed with this idea of being in Christ was because when he was converted, the Lord Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And so he began to recognize that Jesus Christ is so intimately connected to his people that to mess with his people is to mess with him because there's this union between them. So Paul gets gloriously converted and just a brief survey of his life. As you're reading the book of Acts, he had three missionary journeys. So as you're going through the book of Acts, you'll see these three journeys that he took. At the end of the third journey in which he had planted many churches. So when you're reading the New Testament, you can read about how he started most of the churches that, that are addressed here. You can read about in Acts 19 how he went to Ephesus and for three years had a little Bible school and there was a great conversion of masses, a burning of their magic books, a, a great riot where they tried to kill Paul. But all that to be said, after those three journeys, Paul was arrested. He was imprisoned in a place called Caesarea for two years. And after sitting in prison for two years, he appealed to Caesar, from which he then was sort of like going to the Supreme Court, where he went to Rome and sat in prison for two more years. So Paul literally sat in prison for four years in the pinnacle of his ministry when people are getting saved left and right. And he's planting churches all over the world. God puts him in prison for four years. What a waste. Except for the fact that during that time in prison, Paul, having much time to pray and meditate, penned several letters, which we call his prison letters. And one of those letters was Ephesians. And so we might say, Jesus, Paul could have reached thousands of people if you kept him out of prison. And Jesus would say, yeah, but he's reached millions of people because of his meditation and how I used him to write the book of Ephesians. So, Paul wrote 13 letters that we have in the New Testament. There are other letters that he wrote that we don't have. For example, he says in 1 Corinthians, you should read my former letter. You go, Paul, you can't have a former letter. This is 1 Corinthians. He goes, I didn't stutter because that former letter wasn't inspired. Paul said in the book of Colossians, by the way, read my letter to the Laodiceans. Some of you are like, I just had devotions from Laodiceans. No, you didn't. Okay. So, so the point is, Paul wrote a bunch of letters, but the Holy Spirit inspired 13 of these letters, and the church was able to recognize them, and now we've put them together. And you can think of them in three sections. Some of them are called journey letters or missionary letters, like, like the book of Romans. He, he wrote as, as a missionary to, to, to prepare his coming to Rome, like the book of Corinthians. But, but then he also wrote what we call pastoral letters. So he wrote 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. And then he wrote what we call prison letters. So when you're reading the book of Ephesians, Paul is right now in a Roman household prison. Acts 28 describes that. This may be where the background is for why he talks about the armor of God, looking at a Roman soldier, and so forth. But these prison letters have a wonderful message. And this particular book is directed primarily to talk to us about the church and the unity of the body of Christ. So 
let me say a few things about the readers here. I want to start with the phrase, at Ephesus. One of the things that has troubled people about this book is that the book of Acts tells us that Paul spent three years, three years teaching this church. But when he writes this letter, it looks as though he doesn't even know them. He says, I heard about your faith in Christ. And he doesn't name one single person to greet at the end. He doesn't say, greet this guy, this guy, this guy. He never went to Rome, but when he wrote Romans, an entire chapter is devoted to people that he greeted, right? So, so people have looked at this and say, that doesn't make sense. If he was there for three years, why does he talk about hearing about their faith? And why doesn't he make it more personal to their situation? Well, it's quite possible those two words at Ephesus are not found in a lot of Greek manuscripts. So what's possible and has been suggested is that the letter to Ephesians was not really directed to one church, but that rather it was directed to all of the churches. One theologian called it a cyclical letter or an encyclical letter. It was to be passed around to all the churches because they all need to hear that. So possibly it was first to at Ephesus and then passed around. But the point is, it doesn't have a lot of specifics. Like the book of Philippians has very specific situational things. There's two ladies in the church that aren't getting along. He goes, tell Euodia and Syntyche, they need to get along. This one doesn't seem to have any particular specific situational Riverstone Church, Calvary Church, or something going on in that church, but rather a broader message. But let's see what Paul says about these believers, which is true of all of us. He says, number one, he's writing to saints. And that's really important to remember that. In the Roman Catholic tradition, a person is only a saint if they've done miracles. And it's very rare to become a saint, particularly while you're still alive. I'm not even sure if they allow that. That's completely different from what the Bible teaches, okay? The New Testament teaches that every Christian is a saint, okay? Now, the word saint primarily doesn't have to do with your moral character. Like, you're like, oh, I, I, I was out of this, and they came over and helped me. What a saint. The word saint here simply means to be set apart to God, okay? It's not really that you're living like a saint at this point. It just means that God reached down onto this planet of six billion people and he picked you out and he said now you are set apart for me every christian is set apart this this word saint is the same root as the word to be sanctified the verb to be sanctified so my favorite illustration of this is sewing scissors remember mom has sewing scissors and she says these scissors are set apart don't be cutting your, your, your poster paper for that. We might have 10 pair of scissors, but not those. So, so think of yourself as set apart to God. Don't think of yourself as just some crummy sinner who God forgave. Paul told the, the Corinthians, he goes, some of you were thieves, liars, fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals, but not anymore. He goes, you have been sanctified. You have been set apart. You are a blood-bought child of God, washed by Jesus. And, a, and literally, the same word saint can be translated holy one. Now, that means God looks at you as a set-apart holy one, and you're like, me? Did you hear what I said on the way to church? Do you know what I did the other day? You're not a set-apart holy one because of what you or I do. 
We're set apart, holy ones, because of what he did. By the grace of God, the Bible says, by his doing, we are in Christ, forgiven. And so don't just view yourself as a forgiven sinner. View yourself as a saint. God views you as set apart, sanctified, completely forgiven, blameless in Christ. Then he's going to say, now start living that way. But he also says about these saints, they are faithful in Christ. Now that word faithful can have one of two possible meanings. It can mean believers, right? So, so sometimes the word faithful just means you're a believer. And that's true. You're not a saint if you're not a believer. You must put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone in order to be forgiven, in order to be set apart to God. And so make sure you recognize that. And a believer is not somebody who goes, I don't believe in Santa, but I do believe in Jesus. The devil believes in Jesus in his head. A believer is someone who actively trusts Jesus Christ, someone who's willing to follow Jesus Christ, someone who entrusts themselves to Jesus Christ. That doesn't happen by osmosis. It doesn't happen by accident. It happens by a personal decision when God awakens you and you put your trust in Jesus Christ. Some people call it getting saved. Some people call it receiving Jesus Christ as Lord. There are a number of ways to call it. Just make sure you've done it. And if you're not sure, talk to us. Talk to us. How sad would it be for someone to come to church every Sunday and die and miss heaven simply because they thought they were a Christian and no one had shown them from the Bible how they can be a believer. But it is possible this word pistos can also be translated faithful. In other words, it's not just talking about what they believe, it's talking now about how they live. That because of their belief in Christ, their behavior is characterized by genuine obedience to God. Faithfulness is not the same as perfectness. Faithfulness is a person who says, come hell or high water, if I fall down by the grace of God, I'm going to get up. I'm going to try to walk with Jesus. And so I think it may be true that that probably he intended both, that we are both believers who are trying to be faithful to God. If you have no intention, no desire to be faithful to God, if you're like, I don't care about that, what difference does that make? Then I, then I encourage you to question whether you're really a believer. Jesus said, only those who do the will of God will enter my kingdom. Some of you will say, I Oh, Jesus, and he'll go, I don't know you. All you did was practice wickedness. Now, you don't get to heaven by being faithful. But if there's no desire to be faithful and obedient to Christ, you might not be going to heaven because you haven't been changed by Christ. You haven't truly trusted in him. So these saints and faithful brethren in Christ are those to whom Paul wrote this letter. And we can see ourselves in that same stream so the last thing I want to talk about this morning, just briefly, is the, the message of the letter. Look at verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There are a number of ways that we could think about this letter. It certainly is, is full of God's grace. And so I like to think of the book of Ephesians as having two great sections. So as we're going to read through it together, and I really want to encourage you to read it. Don't just read a couple verses. You can read the whole letter in about half an hour, right? Just like you would read a magazine article or a short little paperback book. Read the whole thing. And then, guess what? 
you could read it again. Have any of you ever watched a movie more than once? Did you get anything out of it different the second time? Did you make any connections? Same thing with the Bible. So even if you've read it 50 times, just pray and ask God, show me something new. So I want you to, I want you to just have the big picture and then the Holy Spirit can apply this to you. The first three chapters are how God formed the church lovingly by his grace. So think of it this way. It's the church lovingly formed for God's praise. Okay, now this is important. The first three chapters do not have one single commandment, nothing. There's nothing in there about what God wants you to do. It's all about what God has done for you and me. It's like a treasure chest, like Scrooge McDuck, just picking up your spiritual blessings and going, wow, wow, God, you've done all that for me. The church lovingly formed for God's praise. Next week, we're going to see three times Paul said, God did this to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. We're formed from all different backgrounds, personally saved by grace, corporately brought together into this beautiful new body. But then the last three chapters are the church, not lovingly formed for his grace, but learning to function by his power and particularly learning to function in unity. So as Paul transitions, when you go from chapters one through three with no commandments, when you come to chapter four, over and over again, he, the very first verse, he goes, I urge you to walk, walk worthy. He's gonna say, walk no longer like pagans. He's gonna say, walk in love, walk in the spirit. And so it's, then we're gonna have boots on the ground and we're gonna learn what it looks like to function and we're not going to just, we can do this. We're going to learn to depend on God's power and God's spirit to teach us how to live a life of unity, a life of ministry, a life of purity, a life of family unity, and a life of warfare. And so I'm excited about what God's going to teach us. I'm excited about how we're going to grow through this. But more than ever, be praying that our church will catch a vision for the beauty and the unity of the body of Christ. And listen, it doesn't happen by accident. I, I have encountered numerous Christians who are mad at the church, not just one. They don't like the way they're doing it, and so they're protesting. And I'm going, in the name of Jesus, I rebuke you. Because the Bible teaches that we are to strive in the spirit to promote unity. And just because we're not Burger Kinging it your way, I would urge you not to go, because they're not doing it my way, I'm out of here, or I'm not coming back. And so I encourage, many of you aren't coming back, and I completely understand if you're not coming back because of cautions about COVID, but for those of you that are not coming back cause you don't like the way we're doing it. Can I encourage you to read the book of Ephesians? All of us need to pray that we can strive for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So this morning, Charles Spurgeon at the end of his sermons used to always say this, divide, divide, divide. And his point was, I want you to recognize that there's no such thing as being in and out. You either are a Christian or you're not. The Bible describes two types of people insiders and outsiders. Paul says, 
Walk with wisdom toward outsiders. Do everything you can. He says, I strive to bring outsiders in. So those of you who are here, or those of you who are walking and watching online, I urge you, the most important thing is to make sure that you're in the family of God. If you're not sure if you're a Christian, please don't go another week just going, well, you know, maybe someday. Talk to somebody. Ask God, Lord, if I'm not a believer, show me. There are many people who are seeking to come to know the Lord. We're here to help you and be in prayer that God will awaken and draw people. But if you're on the inside, thank God this morning, Lord, maybe I haven't been living this way, but I praise you that you view me as a saint. I praise you that you've poured out grace on me. And I'm praying that as we come back together physically and literally, and maybe we get on the road to Damascus one of these days, as God mercifully alleviates this COVID, that the church won't get back to normal, but that we'll experience a glorious revival in which race, class, social background, wealth will be nothing because we're all one in Christ. Amen? So let's pray together. Thank you, Father, so much for the church. Jesus Christ shed his blood for us. He poured out his life so that he could build this great society different from the world. Please, Lord, forgive us. We all have bias. We all have pride. We all have some level of prejudice. We all have some level of judgmental hearts. Please help us to strive for the unity of the Spirit. Please help us to see ourselves as this glorious new creation. Father, above all things, this morning I pray for Riverstone Church that we will be revived as a true unified community. And then I pray for all of the churches in America, in the divided states of America, I pray that the church will be more now than ever united, not only in doctrine, but in godly behavior. Father, it's so bleak and troubling, but even as we read in Ephesians, by your great power, you can do more than we ask or think. So for the glory of Jesus, pour out a fresh anointing of your spirit and build a beautiful, glorious church here in this church and all over the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.